I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 30th, 2023. Coming up, part two of our graduation edition, where we talk to PhD students about their thesis work, giving us a view of the cutting edge of new research and pulling back the curtain of that mysterious thing called grad school. It is the end of May, the month when most high school students and colleges have their graduation ceremonies. So today's edition of How on Earth is part two of our annual graduation special. Our guests are three graduate students who received their PhDs this year, and they have joined us to talk about their thesis research and their grad school experiences. Our guests today are doctors, Dhruv Kadar, Katie McGuire, and Brian Alden, all graduating from the University of Colorado at Boulder. Welcome to How on Earth, everyone. So uh, let's just dive right into thesis fun here. Uh, Drew, let me, let me start with you. Uh, so Drew Kadar is in the physics department, and his thesis title is A Fully Crystalline Cryogenic Reference Cavity. So Drew, why do, what is a reference cavity and why do we care? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Joel. Thanks for having us here on the show. It's exciting to talk about this. Um, so I, I work in um, a field of atomic clocks, and what that essentially relates to is we're just trying to keep time and measure time really, really precisely. Um, and the way we do this with atomic clocks is we essentially measure some properties of an atom, and the way we do that is by using a laser. And both of these have to be really stable. And so my PhD was basically on making really, really stable lasers, where that frequency is just a very fine, precise frequency. And the way this works is you can think of it, when two people hold a jump rope, um, you know, they can shake it and there's a standing wave that forms in the middle. Um, and that standing wave has a well-defined frequency. And what we're essentially doing is just the analog of that, except instead of having two people, we have two mirrors and we have light that bounces in between those two mirrors. And we just try and keep the distance between those mirrors as stable as possible. And by making that more stable, that means that that frequency that's propagating between those mirrors is also more stable. And so there's a lot of work that goes into this, but at the end of the day, what you're really, you can think of this as just making a really precise ruler. Mm. And then that ruler mm. defines some frequency and that frequency is the frequency of some laser. And we use that to basically interrogate the atoms, and that forms the atomic clock. So I, I understand you, you want to keep the, the mirrors very steady to keep a constant wavelength, and you use that to determine time. Can you make the connection between getting that wavelength and determining a really precise atomic clock? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, when, when you have that frequency... Uh, or, or the frequency of that light that's between those two mirrors, you can think of it as some number of oscillations per second. The same way if, you know, those two people jump, you know, with that jump rope are shaking it and there's, you know, 
maybe like two peaks and two troughs of that waves every second, you can use that basically to count times. You're counting the cycles of how many oscillations has, you know, of, of that jump rope have appeared in that one second. We do the same thing with light, except light is oscillating in an extremely high frequency, faster than, you know, our eyes can count or electronics can count. Um, but it's the same principle. We're just trying to find clever ways to actually use that frequency and count how many cycles are actually going on each second. Um, and that's generally a very steady number by itself. Of course, over time, as, as the length between those mirrors change, that frequency changes a little bit. And so that's when we start to measure against the atoms. And there's, there's reasons we do that. But the point is we essentially, we essentially use some sort of feedback loop to constantly stabilize this frequency to something which we think is a little bit more stable. So using the analogy of the people with the jump rope, uh, they're all they're standing there carefully and doing their oscillation in time. Everything's good, but one of them gets a little antsy and starts moving back and forth and jumping around, and the the wave gets a little bit messy. And you're that's what you're trying to avoid is the messy. Exactly, that's a great analogy. You're trying to prevent one of those people from getting a little tired or moving around. You want them to really, you know, kind of be you know like clockwork, just keeping that same frequency. So. Um, you talk about a crystalline cryogenic reference cavity. So I get the idea of the reference cavity. Cryogenic, you want to keep it cool. Exactly. We want to, we want to keep it as cold as possible. Um, there's, there's fundamental reasons why we do that. It turns out that when things are colder, there's, they have less sort of thermal excitation. So you can maybe... Going back to this analogy, you can think of like, okay, I, I turn up the temperature in the room. These two people <laughs> with the jump rope get really hot. They get really, you know, uncomfortable and they start moving around a little bit mm. more. When things cool down and you remove that thermal, you know, excitation, um, they're less likely to do that. So, so what attracted you to this? I mean, admittedly, sometimes it's just whatever professor has the money to bring in a grad student for their project. Uh, was this something you came into grad school interested in doing? Yeah, I, I think it's a really exciting project. I think um, it's nice. Uh, so the, the larger subfield I work in is called atomic physics, and, and people are essentially trying to use atoms to measure physical phenomena. And, and there's a couple of reasons this is nice. First is the scale of these experiments are very small. So you have maybe two or three graduate students working on them, and, and you can make really interesting measurements. Um, and additionally... Um, I, I think, you know, it's it's nice to kind of see that there's an impact to your work. Um, everyone uses atomic clocks. Every time our, our phone updates its time, it's syncing to something on GPS. And so, you know, everyone in their everyday life, like when you're driving down the highway and you, you your, you know, Google tells you to take a left at some intersection, it's doing that by, you know, measuring and syncing against the satellite. And the way it does that is by essentially using a really precise clock on that satellite. So in the future, when Google does not lead us to a dead end, we'll have you to thank. You can come blame me. Yeah. So uh, just one last question on this. Um, what is it that was unique or different in your thesis work from what's already being done? Yeah, so, so essentially that frequency that, we, uh, we, that is dictated by that laser, we found a way to stabilize that you know, about an order of magnitude better than what people have done in the past. Great. Oh, that's a big improvement. That's great. So... I'll be sure to take my left turn just at the right time. Well, uh, let's move on to our next guest, who is Katie McGuire in the Anthropology Department. And uh, her title of her thesis is 
navigating the needs of the many and the few, examining the relationship between ring-tailed lemur, lemur cata, group function and individual variation on St. Catherine's Island. And I just want to say, I know it's probably been done many, many times before, but this is the first time I've seen a Trek reference in a uh, thesis title. So uh, that's good. Good use of the many and the few. <laughs> so uh, Katie, tell me about ring-tailed lemurs. So um, ring-tailed lemurs are small-bodied um, primates that are actually like our distantly related cousins. Um, and they kind of look like a, a slender version of a raccoon down to the stripy tail. Um, and they live, they have these rich social lives living in groups of like four to 20 individuals um, on the island of Madagascar. And I like to stay, say that I study um, like the evolutionary history of like group projects or like teamwork in the sense that, um, you know, the challenges we face when we work on group projects or on teams is na navigating like our own interests, our needs, you know, the, and different personality interests, getting all those people to work together towards a collective outcome. And that's what I studied instead of in humans with these little primates, trying to understand how these different, um, these different lemurs with different characteristics and histories and relationships with each other work together to, um, you know, maintain a home range that's essential for their survival. Um, and sometimes that means fighting with each other. Mm -hmm. um, I also looked at like, um, you know, anti-predator behaviors, because one pair of eyes is not as good as multiple pairs of eyes when it comes to looking for like that owl. Mm -hmm. um, and also just looking at like their social networks and their relationships. Um, and all of that depends on who is in the social group and their different health statuses, their, their injury histories and their social statuses. So I like to kind of, you know, investigate though the, how they navigate the, you know, what they wanted, what their individual needs are and the collective group's needs. This is in the Department of Anthropology, though it's, it's not people, but you said kind of distant ancestors. Mm -hmm. I would think of studying people, at least they can tell you what they're thinking and doing. How is it working with lemurs and how does that apply to larger picture with I don't know how people interact. I don't know if you extrapolate that far. <laughs> so, yes, it's not like I can go out and ask them about their lives. So I, you know, spent six months on this wonderful island called St. Catharines, um, which is actually in the United States in Georgia. Um, and I went out every day and recorded their behaviors, individual behaviors and their um, and their group behaviors. Um, and what I wanted to learn um, is, you know, from that behavior is, the evolution of, so, you know, looking at the evolution of sociality, because as you've said, you know, we are an incredibly social species. Like it's one of the, you know, kind of foundations of our success as a species. Mm -hmm. And there is a strong evolutionary history of sociality back to, you know, the kind of stem primates with, it, like strepsorines, which is what lemurs are. Um, and they are incredibly social too and vi have very complex lives. And so we can kind of learn a little bit about ourselves and that, uh, that evolution of sociality f by looking at these more distantly related primates. So on St. Catherine's Island, you studied three or several gr yes. groups of, of these 
uh, ring-tailed lemurs. Um, what did you find as far as similarities or differences between the groups or even individuals within them? So I found that they are, um, you know, even though these are smaller groups that I studied, four to seven individuals, um, which is a significant like gap in our understanding about small primate groups, um, they're actually incredibly functional and successful. Um, they evaded predator threats. Um, they maintained extensive home ranges. They fought with each other um, and they have rich social lives. Um, and it, I found, you know, on an individual level that who is in those social groups really does matter about the di the social dynamics, you know, where they go, what they do, um, because, you know, th there's um, the, like the kin relationships, the family, the familial relationships in these social groups really are the foundation of what they do, where they go and mm -hmm. um, and the kind of connectedness. So, so the family structure is incredibly mm -hmm. important. Uh, can you describe any what that family structure is like, or how it is similar or different to human family structure? Absolutely. So, fun fact about ring-tailed lemurs: they're actually female-dominated, which means that females—it's it's a matriarchal society. Um, and I actually started studying them because they were very similar to what I saw with my my mom. My mom is the youngest of seven children, and is part of this great like matri you know matriarchal family with my all of my aunties, and they you know they really do kind of. And I saw a lot of parallels there, um, and that is what I saw whenever I went in and looked at these. These, these groups that, you know, there are one or two match lines and the, the, the strength of the connections between these individuals is really foundational, founded on kin relationships. Hmm. And, you know, who, it, for example, I mentioned what I call lemur rumbles, fight, <laughs> fights between the groups. Da, 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 da. <laughs> exactly. Sharks and jets sort <laughs> of. Um, who engages in those lemur rumbles, who fights with each other is based on the matra lines, the kin relationships between these individuals and the females that have the kind of the greatest kin in the relationship are like, all right, I'm stepping up to the plate and I'm going to, you know, fight with the, the other group. So um, just like our societies and our, cult, you know, our, our families, like, who your relatives are in the group are really important to the social dynamics of this species. So, so you mentioned you were at least partly drawn into this just from similarities. Maybe you don't want to say this around the dinner table, similarities <laughs> of your family and ring-tailed lemurs, but um, what, you know, what was your path that brought you into this? So um, I actually was training to be a microbiologist when I was an undergrad and we had um, at Georgia Tech and we had a capstone project where we got to go to the zoo Atlanta and pick any animal in the zoo to like study. And I chose lemurs and, you know, seeing those parallels in this very distantly related primate, you know, not not an ape, like not, you know, like baboons or gorillas or um, chimpanzees, but this very distantly related primate i saw so many parallels mm. between my mom's family and <laughs> um and these lemurs and that just absolutely fascinated me like to see you know and not a lot of not many people study lemurs sure. um and so to be able to go in there and be like how are they like us how how are those relationships and social dynamics and social networks similar different and how do they survive because of it yeah a lot of theses just come from a basic question like that. How do, how does, you know, why, 
and suddenly you've spent six years writing a thesis. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Katie. Let me move on to Brian Alden from the Astrophysical and Planetary Sciences Department. His thesis title is Investigating the Properties of Merging Galaxy Clusters with Radio Halos Relics Using X-Ray-Derived Pressure Maps. So, Brian, merging galaxy clusters and pressure maps. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for having me. And my title is a mouthful. I will acknowledge that. Um, so I study galaxy clusters. And those are the largest gravitationally bound objects in the universe. And what I mean by that is uh, if you've ever taken a zoomed out view of the universe, you can start to see what look like neural pathways forming. We call that the cosmic web or the large scale structure. And the nodes of that large scale structure are uh, kind of like a beehive of galaxies. There's hundreds to thousands of Milky Way sized galaxies all orbiting around a central uh, mass. And the gas between those galaxies is actually the majority of the mass in the cluster. It's about 90% of that mass. And it's superheated. So it's hundreds of millions of degrees Kelvin, and it emits X-rays. Um, we study those X-rays using the Chandra X-ray Observatory, which is about a third of the way to the moon. Um, and we take X-ray pictures, similar to going to the doctor and getting an X-ray of your arm. From those x-rays, we're able to determine temperature and pressure. And when we do that, we're able to try to identify uh, what I specifically did was trying to identify turbulence in that gas to try and see how energy propagates through uh, the cluster itself. And the reason why is in astrophysics, we like to find what we call standard candles. And that's something that we know the properties of so that if we start to see it shifted a little bit, we can make determinations on how far away it is, or if it's further or closer, what temperature it is. Um, and with that, we're able to start to determine uh, the way our universe has evolved and potentially properties of dark energy or dark matter. So it's interesting. You mentioned that this gas is actually the major component of mass I should caveat that, the baryonic yes. mass. Okay. The, the mass, that's not the mysterious dark mass. Correct. <laughs> but still, even of mass that we know and we can somehow observe, it's still more mass than all the galaxies in the cluster. Yeah. It, it's, and that's mainly and, because... In that way, it was kind of invisible until we could look in x-rays, probably. That's very true. In... Uh, in the 30s, a guy named Fritz Zwicky was looking at galaxy clusters. They didn't know they were galaxy clusters at the time. They didn't have that term. Um, but he started to identify that there had to be more mass there, uh, and he called it dunkel matter. Uh, <laughs> sure. Um, but then in the 60s and 70s, when we had X-ray telescopes, we were able to actually image a lot of that mass and then see that there's still a lot of missing mass there, mm. which is the dark matter. Um, but we were able to start to measure the amount of mass uh, that was in the intracluster medium. That's the gas between the galaxies. And it is a very low density gas. I mean, in roughly the size of a bushel of apples, there's one atom <laughs> for every you know bushel of apples. Uh, but when you add up all the space between the galaxies, it's a lot of mass and it's about uh, 10 to the 15 suns. 
So that's one with 15 zeros. A million billion. (laughs) A lot of suns (laughs) present in that gas. Wow. So um, what will this possibly then lead to? So what I hope it eventually leads to is a better understanding of dark energy and the evolution of the universe. It's just a small thing. Yeah. 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 No big deal. No big deal. (laughs) What got you interested in this? A couple things. In undergrad, I was trying to decide between particle physics and astrophysics. So junior year, I went to the Large Hadron Collider for a summer and got to do some research there. Uh, those research groups were thousands of people deep. and right. it, the, the first five pages of the paper is all just author list. Yeah, and while the research was fun, it's very difficult to work with thousands of people in any timely fashion. Um, for senior year, I did an astrophysics research project uh, in radio astronomy, and I worked with my advisor. Hmm. And that was the entire research group. So right, right, I, right. I got That's a lot nice. more of a one-on-one interaction and really got to explore a lot of different avenues. And I liked that, so I came. I started applying to astro programs. And when I came to see you, uh, my advisor was able to pitch me very well on why I should come work for him. And it wasn't just that he had funding. That right. was a big part but in it. it, it, it <laughs> that still matters. That's definitely a part in it. Uh, you know, offering me three years of funding right off the bat was very nice. Yeah. Um, but it was also a big data project. So I got to use one of the top 10 supercomputers in the world uh, and working with hundreds of terabytes of data. And it, it was a lot of fun. Well, so. One of the things I have to say I love about doing this show is it covers all things and all scales. And I have an example right here from atomic scale, you know, some of the smallest structure in the universe to galaxy clusters, the largest structure in the universe and human scale in the middle here. It's, it's great. I love that. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of people think, you know, grad school, you, you punch through high school and you go through undergrad and you go through grad school, but it's not always a constant path. It's not always a linear progression. It's not always what you expect it to be, even when you get to grad school. But Brian, you had kind of a gap year. <laughs> you could say that, or maybe a gap decade. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I joined the Marine Corps in 2003 and was a Marine until 2013 with uh, deployment to Iraq and two deployments to Afghanistan, amongst other places around the world. Right. So... And that was between undergrad and grad? That was before undergrad. That was before yeah, undergrad. Yeah, I, I did a semester of community college, and during that semester, 9-11 happened. Yes. So that kind of started me on the path to joining the Marine Corps. That's, it's a big gap to go back to college at that. So you're technically a non-traditional student. Very non-traditional. Um, yeah. I've been the oldest student in my classes almost always. Um, and did yeah. you find college and particularly grad school was it what you expected to a certain extent i mean i had met with some grad students who with tears in their eyes were telling me not to go to grad school (laughs) because it was not what they expected so i kind of knew it was going to be a a very rough time sure sure Um, but it was rougher than i thought yeah no it is and it sometimes ends up being a very different path than what you expected, even within grad school. Dhruv, uh, tell me, you know, what was your path like getting into grad school? Was, what, was it what you expected? 
Yeah, not at all. Um, kind of similar to Brian, I actually jumped around a different bunch of different fields of physics uh, through undergrad. Didn't actually like physics that much through undergrad, like <laughs> math more, and math was too hard, so figured I'd go to grad school for something else. Um, and then took a couple of years off, actually, after undergrad, working abroad, um, doing different types of physics, traveling a bit, um, thinking about exactly what I wanted to do. And then when I felt ready a couple of years later, applied to graduate schools and, and ended up here in Boulder. Um, so yeah, I definitely had no idea what my career path is going to look like at the end of undergrad. Wasn't entirely sure where, but really liked doing research and thought that grad school might be in the future. Well, it was. Yeah. And congratulations <laughs> on that too. Katie, what about you? So, um, as I mentioned before, I was uh, actually training to be a microbiologist, and so I did a gap year between graduate school and undergrad, where I was um, working in a lab, basically keeping your the chickens safe from salmonella infection, um, and um, it was it was really exciting and I learned about lots of different research methodologies, but not really aligned with what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. So I came, um, came here to apply to, to here to see you Boulder, um, never having taken an anthropology class hmm. actually when I stepped foot into it. So I had a lot of imposter syndrome of, you know, coming from, you know, the hard scientists and, Oh, they're going to find, find me out that right. I'm not, you know? Um, but I actually felt one of the most unexpected, pieces of graduate school was um, how interesting working on interdisciplinary teams is and working with different types of um, scientists, social scientists, engineers, um, animal specialists. Mm. specialists. And so my, I actually very quickly realized, oh, I'm exactly where I belong because I get to work with all these wonderful people who have different perspectives on science and also the world. You, you found your, your lemur group. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right, so we'll end with lightning round here. The what next round. So, you know, in, in a few words, Katie, what are you going to do after you graduate? <laughs> um, so I'm really interested in this kind of intersection between science and society and like translating, you know, what... Um, scientists do for really practical applications like policy initiatives mm -hmm. and um, conservation initiatives, um, but also things like um, science communication and so forth. Um, so I'm currently applying for jobs um, working at that intersection between science and society. Excellent. Drew? Yeah, I, I have no idea, for, uh, Joel. That's fine. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, no I, idea is a fine answer. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of interesting problems out there. I like working on, on difficult problems and I've looked at things outside physics, outside science, you know, within physics, similar to what I do. And the problem is you kind of run into this paradox of choice where everything looks exciting. Yes. You know, grad school kind of teaches you to find something interesting about every single problem. And when you do that a little bit too much, then you, you become a little bit flummoxed with what the next step is. Too many choices. Yeah. All right. And Brian? Uh, I am currently looking for work in the aerospace and national defense sector. Excellent. Well, I want to thank all of you very, very much for being on the show. That was Dhruv Kadar, Katie McGuire, and Brian Alden, all are graduate students who just completed their PhDs at the University of Colorado Boulder. Check out the How on Earth website for part one of this graduation special, which aired on May 2nd, and all the graduate student interviews we have had as part of this annual series since 2016.
That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Blue Claw Philharmonic. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.